Welcome to Coffee and Conservation, hosted by Dr. Beth Baker, Assistant Extension Professor in the Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Aquaculture at Mississippi State University. From water and soil to habitat and food production, Dr. Baker and her guests discuss the necessity and complexity of conservation in the U.S. Okay, welcome back to another edition of Coffee and Conservation. Um, I'm here with my friend and colleague, Dr. Leslie Berger. Hi. Thank you for inviting me today, uh, Beth. I'm excited to be here. I know. I'm excited you're here, too. Um, and it's probably <laughs> – now it might – it was good that we got coffee initially, but right. now I'm thinking that after one sip it might, it might, might be too much. send us over the edge. <laughs> um, but it's, it's a pleasure to have you here, and I am excited um, about the things we're going to talk about today because uh, we're going to get into youth conservation education – which um, I don't know anybody that knows more about that than you. That's that's a sad thing. (laughs) (laughs) No, no. Um, It's a compliment. Thank you. And so um, it'll be great for our listeners, too, to get to learn more about it because we cover so many different topics uh, on the show. But, you know, I know we're both really passionate about youth conservation Mm -hmm. education. Um, And so... So it would be great for our listeners to hear more about it, too, because who more important to learn about conservation than uh, the future? That's right. So very excited. Um, You are an assistant extension professor in the Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Aquaculture. I should mention that. Um, And how many – you've been in the department about as – well, you've been in the department longer than me. I have. I've been there since 2008, so I've had a variety of positions, starting with one that was related to youth conservation education. And over time, my positions have – have changed a little bit. They've expanded as I've got additional training. There's their good word. They have evolved. Uh, And part of that related to just getting uh, some additional training, getting my PhD, opened up some more doors for me. And so I have been an uh, an assistant extension professor since 2015. Mm -hmm. And the time flies. It does. (laughs) Uh, Tell us a little bit about your background and how you started, how you came to even work in youth conservation education, because it is you know, any niche that you get into at the doctoral level, it seems to be a small community, Mm -hmm. Um, but a really interesting one too. So tell us a little bit, a little bit about how you came to find yourself working in youth conservation education. Right. Um, So it is sort of an accidental pathway. It wasn't anything that I said as a child, this is what I'm going to grow up and do. Um, What I did want to do was work in conservation. I had a love of wildlife and the outdoors that was fostered by living uh, in a rural environment in western Pennsylvania, being able to kind of run free and, and play in the woods and uh, the cow pastures behind our house. And my parents would take us uh, camping west every year, starting from my junior high level. And we so we went to all the national parks out west. And those experiences really just helped foster this love of the outdoors and, uh, and for conservation. So I started in a biology program as a grad or as an undergraduate, and I went on to get a master's degree in wildlife ecology, and worked as a biologist for a state agency for five or six years, um, working in conservation. Started working with um, on game topics, quail and rabbits, and then moved to working with um, waterfowl conservation and wetland conservation. And then eventually, my last position at that agency was working with endangered species and uh, fragile ecosystems, which was my goal all along. Um, 
in, in graduate school. Um, my husband was also in this same field, and he completed his doctoral work um, about the same time. We had our first child, and he got offered a position at Mississippi State. So we moved uh, here, and we've been here for almost 26 years. Uh, so I had a hiatus um, for, for almost 15 years. I stayed home with my children, um, not necessarily intending to be home for 15 years, but mm-hmm. I did want to be home when they were little. And, uh, and so I got involved with youth education that way because my kids got involved in 4-H, and um, we too lived on some acreage, and so we used the natural environment around us uh, as an educational platform uh, and just recreational platform. And, um, but I shared that with um, almost accidentally with other kids that were coming to our house. Um, I got involved with our local 4-H group, and we started uh, with another friend of mine. We started doing... Um, conservation club type activities. I was involved with 4-H shooting sports. And then as my kids got, um, the oldest, I have three boys, and so the oldest two wanted to go to a camp that was being held at Mississippi State University. And as a single income home, I couldn't really afford that tuition. But um, I was able to go to the organizer of that event and say, hey, I have I have degrees in this field. If we um, we stay at home at night, we don't have to stay in the dorms, and I feed them breakfast, and we don't need the T-shirt, right. can, can they just come at a lesser price, and I'll work for free? Mm-hmm. And um, that actually is what inadvertently started me on this career at Mississippi State. Um, they did go to camp. I did work for free, but then I got picked up uh, as a temporary worker and worked the next camp in, in that capacity as a temporary worker. Mm-hmm. And then an opening came up at Mississippi State, and they were looking for someone who had experience in youth education, uh, mostly what we call informal environments, not in the classroom per se, but in these these informal settings like 4-H. And, um, but they also wanted someone that understood the science. Well, I could do that because I had the two degrees in the science and I had the informal um, experience. And so I applied for the job and, and got it. And so that's why I started with Mississippi State in 2008. Uh, so it really was, um, it was just a blending of interests and opportunities mm-hmm. and experiences that provided me the, um, the training that I needed to be able to be competitive for my initial position. Um, then while I was doing that later, I went back and got my Ph.D. while I was still working at Mississippi State and got the, um, got the letters behind my name, mm-hmm. got the more formal training that I hadn't had, um, particularly in education. And so I got that, that training and was able to move into a professor position. Um, so I guess that's my, my convoluted yeah. way here. It wasn't as a kid. There was never anything I said, someday I'm going to be Dr. Berger. It's like, well, no. you did mention those experiences that you had with your family, right. though, and that's so common. I mean, that's it what is. I remember about growing up and mm-hmm. why I feel like we're lucky most days to get to do the jobs that we do because right. it's in an area that we're passionate about. Um, and then you were able to bring it full circle with your children mm-hmm. as well, which is, again, a whole the whole reason why why this youth conservation education is so important because not all children get those experiences. Right. Um, it's even hard to, it's actually sometimes hard when you grew up with those experiences to imagine just growing up in a city mm-hmm. where you never were once exposed to sure. the natural environment. Right. Or and as I, natural as we can find it. Right. <laughs> the definition of natural becomes very different depending mm-hmm. on your perspective, as most things in life are. Mm-hmm. It's, it's about perspective. And so I think as we see uh, as we are, see our society shift to be more urban, uh, more uh, moving away from the or, or rural backgrounds and moving into urban settings or suburban settings, 
Um, that takes our kids away from those natural connections. Um, certainly the rise of electronic entertainment, uh, cell phones and, and DVRs and computer-based enter- entertainment. And all those things um, are, are sucking our kids' time away. And then kids just nowadays tend to be more um, hyper-scheduled, just kind of the word that's being used. Mm-hmm. And they get there in school. When they get done with school, they got to run the piano or soccer or baseball and you know, they come some home and they do. Activity. They have some kind of organized activity. They don't have that free time to do like I would do, and maybe you did too, you know, to, to roam the pastures and flip over the rocks and see what lives underneath that. So when we start talking about um, societally, we start talking about conservation of natural resources, these young people have no idea what we're talking about mm-hmm. um, because it's not anything in their um, experiences, their personal experiences. They don't have that connection. They don't have that firsthand experience, so they really don't care. Mm-hmm. Um they don't care because they don't have a love for it. They didn't have the opportunity to do it. Or they don't care because they didn't know, they don't understand the connections between their um, experience. Truly, <laughs> yeah, and their survival. I mean, right. clean water and food uh, is all dependent on, on a, um, natural resources that can sustain those things. And mm-hmm. if they are polluted or eroded or not functioning properly, then the society that those kids are used to living um, becomes very different. And they don't understand that they don't recognize their food comes from an animal their food comes from a plant and the clean water right clean water doesn't just come out of speak it's coming from someplace comes from amazon right (laughs) so uh they don't understand those kind of connections and so our messages at you know at mississippi state um or any kind of conservation organization that's trying to message to these people it falls short it falls on dead ears because they don't they don't understand and so i think there is a real need not just for young people. I mean, it, now it's been going on long enough that we have young adults that don't mm-hmm. have that. And so then that cycle, just like you were saying, for me, I was able to carry that cycle forward to my kids because it was my experience that I shared. If you're a young adult and you didn't have that experience, you're not going to share it with your kids. If you're a young single mom and you're trying to put food on the table, you're not worried about any of this. Right. You know, so um, there, there really is, I think, a need to be able to at least inform people where their food and water comes from, mm-hmm. you know, at that most basic level, so that they do understand it's not just coming from the spigot. Right. That spigot has to be attached to something, um, and that the, the meat that they're eating in their burger that they got at the restaurant <coughs> came from an animal, Except for now, they can grow it in a petri dish. This is true. <laughs> Excuse me. But yeah, I know, but yeah. And you would think that at the basic STEM level, since so many people are into having their children um, learn, you know, be good at STEM, focus on that in their academics, especially with uh, younger women mm-hmm. um, having those opportunities, you think there'd be some emphasis on the connection to the natural world. But it's pretty complex when it you is. have to take it out of a textbook. To, to teach it even. It is. You know, you know, I find it really challenging to teach. And, and again, when you have an audience that isn't even familiar with the most basic things about mm-hmm. food coming from an animal, where water comes from, you're really, you're starting at like this level of teaching that it's hard for us to go back to once we know it so well. Right. Which you pointed out to me nicely in a, in a <laughs> manual I was creating. Uh, but it is, it's a challenge on the teaching side too. It is. So from your perspective, what are some of the fundamental reasons that educating youth about conservation and the environment is so important as we move forward? As you mentioned, they're not just children now. It's also young adults that are somewhat disconnected. Um, so what do you, what's the toll you think that could take 
if we don't continue to make this an emphasis and a priority area? Right. Well, I think one of the biggest things is kind of what we touched on already. They don't under, there's a lack of understanding that the quality of life that we enjoy, particularly here in the United States, is dependent upon the resources that are available to us. And if we are poor stewards of those resources, they're just not going to be available to us. And so you can get kind of gloom and doom about it. But um, the reality is, if you fast forward, we could be looking, you know, even in a, a country as wealthy and as blessed as the United States is, with the same kind of shortages that you see in other parts of the world. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, no one likes to think about that. And maybe they're not think they don't care because it's not their generation. It'll be somebody else's generation. But the, but the honest truth is it can only sustain you for so long. And so there, there has to be that recogniz- recognition that... Um, our health and well-being is contingent upon the health and well-being of the planet that sustains us for, for those resources. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we have um, – there's, there's just so much research out there that even talks about the psychological benefits of, of a natural place. And we mm-hmm. find being ourselves – Right, just being outside. You know, the sunshine, if you need basic, it's just vitamin D. Mm-hmm. Um, but just, I mean, even having a plant in your office, research has shown having a plant in your office is relaxing. And, and you look at things societally like the, the, um, the screensavers that are on, that are preloaded on computers. Those are natural scenes. Those are fish in the ocean. Those mm-hmm. are the mountains. Those are streams. Um, the, the, Sports teams are named after wildlife because those wildlife are inspirational. They Mm -hmm. inspire us with their speed or their strength or their perseverance. And so we we have a connection, not to oversell that, but we have there is a there is value aesthetically and psychologically to having wild places. And they don't have to be like um, huge places. It can be a plant in your office. Mm -hmm. But when we get disconnected from that, um, we lose some of those benefits that are available to us. And um, so there's a man that made that very popular with what he's called the nature nature deficit disorder. Um, Richard Liu kind of coined that. And it's just talking about all these kind of fallout things that can happen um, societally as well as um, personally, intellectually. There's some evidence that suggests that's also part psychologically, all these things. There are real benefits to having nature um, out there for us to enjoy, Mm -hmm. not just a benefit from. Right. I'm glad you bring that up because, you know, in, in most of the episodes we're talking, quail, yeah. Or fisheries, <laughs> you know, something hunter, angler, mm-hmm. sportsman style, but there are plenty of people, I don't want to say the majority because I don't have the numbers, but plenty of people that enjoy the environment just being outside. Sure. You know, just that that's their way of just doing recreational sports outside, mm-hmm. whether it's hiking or walking or running or just, you know, right. being outside. Sit outside and read a book. Yes. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm glad you bring that, that component up. Um, there are some of those um, potential consequences that can sometimes be not the most ex- happy thing to talk about mm-hmm. if, if we aren't able to um, kind of instill this, um, I'm losing all my words, but um, <laughs> instill this passion for the environment sure. a- across multiple groups of people or folks mm-hmm. that are disinterested. But on a more positive note... I was curious, um, what have you seen as some of the direct impacts or outcomes on youth from learning about the environment? Because mm-hmm. that's the fun part. It when is the fun part. you get to see how uh, the, the work you're doing and the, the education you're providing 
is actually changing someone's perception mm-hmm. and and potentially even their behaviors. Sure. Uh, you know, for me, it's I, all I am trying to do in everything I do, whether it's in formal education or the teaching that I do at Mississippi State, is to try to move everybody in this, this uh, bar graph I kind of have in my head, you know, with zero on the left to, I guess, infinity that goes off to the right. So if I can like move... Like a Likert scale. Like, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> a volume thing. You know, something that moves them to the to the right and increases whatever that is. And mm-hmm. so I've had cases where um, the win is really small. Like I'm doing a program uh, about... Um, then I have a, a bug there or a snake there. And a snake's a good one. You know, and mm-hmm. I can clear a room out with a snake, a live snake. But if I can have that, you know, that young person stay in the room mm-hmm. and not run out, that's a win. If they will come and touch it, and um, where before they wouldn't have, that's a win. If they will hold it mm-hmm. where before they wouldn't, that's a win. And so that's moving that bar. Um, fear of wild things is becoming so... Um, prevalent so prevalent and it doesn't even have to to be a real wild thing we were kind of laughing about something in the office but it's kind of sad too where someone was afraid of uh, a taxidermic mount Mm -hmm. and it wasn't even a live animal it wasn't even a whole animal just (laughs) part of an animal and they were they were honestly terrified and so not to belittle that person but that's a that's a sad commentary Mm -hmm. uh, on kind of where we are if people are that terrified of wild animals of course they're not going to want to conserve them right because they're terrified of it. And so if I can move that bar, so, you know, to, to have a win, mm-hmm. touch the snake, that's wonderful. I've had young people come to programs and they'd say, I thought this is what I want to do. Now I know this is what I want to study and do my life, mm-hmm. you know. So um, to, to have them change or, or know this is what they want to do for a career, that that's huge. To have them stop doing something they were be- doing um, throwing their trash out the window because yeah. they just didn't realize, you know, that that was not a positive thing. And, when and to have them say, well, I'm not going to do that anymore, mm-hmm. you know. So those are little things. And, you know, you and I have talked in the hallways. It's really hard to measure those and report them for, you know, gains. And, you know, I can publish paper. Kid no longer throws trash out the window. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, it's not, not going to be in nature. But it's not. But it's it, so important. It is. It's so important. Yeah, so. I'm glad you bring that up. Um, yeah, just thinking about all those small positive things and, and just the small comments from students. You're right, we we don't get a chance to measure them when it comes to uh, the way beans are counted in mm-hmm. different institutions, but they're the things that you remember and they you are. still smile about later right. on. Right, and, and I hope that our our lives are not so shallow that we only can measure our importance um, based on um, a plaque on the wall mm-hmm. or um, an award, of, you know, that our peers all see. I hope that we can see satisfaction and we know that we've had a positive impact in some fashion in somebody's life. Mm-hmm. And we can do that um, in a conservation standpoint, what we're talking about today, or you can do it anything. But, you know, I hope that my purpose on life is, is you know, is to help to uh, improve lives Right, and, and have those meaningful connections with people. That's right. Because that's, you know, that's, if that's what we remember, that's probably what most people right. remember is a meaningful connection mm-hmm. to something, whether it is the conservation or it's just that you cared about them as an educator or, mm-hmm. or something like that. Um, 
So we talked a little bit about the way even educators can not be really effective. Mm -hmm. because we've all had great teachers and we've all had some teachers that just did not connect the information for sure. us. Um, but most of us really want to be good educators. Uh, so what do you think are some flaws or ineffective educational approaches that even, you know, many of us take when conducting youth education um, events and maybe some positive strategies to remediate those? Mm-hmm. Because, you know... It's hard. Even though we're children inside, <laughs> something about putting on our adult hats. like Right. It just takes us away for, uh, away from the level that children are at. Sure. And I think that's the, one of the, the biggest flaws that I see is, you're right, we, be, we, be, we forget what it's like to be a kid. We forget what it is that, um, that sparked our interest in the first place, what brought us to this. The nice thing about we, working with youth is you can kind of, you can, you can, visit that again Mm -hmm. but you have to intentionally think about what what was it like um, when I was at age or if you don't if you don't remember and certainly you know they train we have we have students that come through our education program here at Mississippi State and they're teaching them here's what a kid at four years old can do here's what one at eight years old can do here's what a 12 year old is capable of doing and so one of the mistakes people make is that they have a mismatch between the content level, either the depth or the delivery, and the, where, the, where your audience is. And we can do that, not just with kids, we can do it with adults, too. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can be way over their heads, and you've lost them because they don't understand you. Or you can insult them because you went too low. Um, as you brought it up earlier, um, we are increasingly have to kind of back up. And uh, we can't assume that they are all at, at, at point B, because they might still be at A, and we've designed it to start at point B, and so we've lost them. We're, we're over right their heads. Started. Right, they don't. They didn't get anything from that. And so um, teaching style is important. Not, you know, kids aren't going to want to be lectured at. We tend to want to just drop them in a chair and talk to them for the next 40 minutes, and that's not going to work. So you need to kind of think about how can I um, teach this material in a way that they're going to be able to interact with, to um, but actually to learn from. And so that kind of challenge is there. One of the biggest challenges that um, I guess maybe I've just stumbled into is we bring our own biases in with us. And so, uh, you know, somebody listening on the radio is not going to be able to see that I'm a middle-aged white woman, but, but I am. Right. And so I'm going to bring that, that background, that experience to me. I cannot as effectively market then to someone who is not that, you know, mm-hmm. to the to a Hispanic family, to the single African-American mom with, you know, three boys Mm -hmm. that might be interested in in something outdoors. It is harder for me to to think about what are going to be some of the challenges that they're going to face and um, not, not inherently because they're Hispanic or they're black, but like in my marketing, am I going to, am I going to um, be able to recruit them to my program because I've, I've gone to, to where they are? Or I understand, you know, for this urban population that transportation is an issue. So, mm-hmm. you know, do I, they're not going to have a, necessarily a ride here, you know, wherever here is. So I have to think about those things. And um, a lot of times we have these really great ideas for fantastic programs. They're going to love it. It's going to be great. And then we're disappointed when it's like crickets and no one shows up. It's because we've had a disconnect. We brought our biases into that, and we've marketed it the way we would like it. Mm-hmm. We've developed it the way we would like it. But 
but that's very one dimensional mm -hmm. because people are not all the same. Right. And so in the lack of, you know, not when lack of having perspective, you can you can accidentally, not intentionally, but accidentally leave out whole segments of the population because you just didn't think um, you didn't put yourself in their shoes right. and think what's going to work for them. You just you just came at it from your own perspective. And I see that a lot. And so bring, being able to talk, having people that you know that you can talk to and say, this is my idea. Is this going to work for your group? Um, I think is something we need to be more willing to do. Getting some feedback. Getting feedback, getting input from others to make sure that all voices are, are represented will mean that we do a better job of conservation. And, and historically, um, just the nature of the way the whole field has developed, um, right now, it's not a very diverse field mm -hmm. um, as far as its employees to, and to a lesser degree to the, um, to the participants. And as our culture gets, is, gets increasingly diverse, uh, we are going to have to do a better job of bringing those voices to the table. And that's going to mean bringing them in at the, at the like a university level or an organization level so that they can then turn around and recruit back into their own populations and, and broaden our participation in conservation and conservation activities. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and you know, recreating outdoors, especially when the majority of the population lives in an urban area, is not necessarily cheap. In my, in my mind, mm -hmm. um, if I were to recreate outside with my family on the weekend, it is kind of a free weekend of activity. Mm -hmm. um, but I have the resources to drive to, right. um, you know, a site to go camping or go hiking mm -hmm. and bring the things with that that I need. It's easy for me to leave the city, come back to the city kind of thing. Um, but for the majority of folks, it's it's not. With That's the right. activities in the city are what are immediately available if transportation's sure. not. Mm -hmm. um, so I think we kind of miss that too. Right. And at the same time, it's the main goal of a lot of the programs that you help put on, whether it's getting kids involved in angling or teaching them about mm -hmm. um, the environment through conservation education. All those different things are meant to give them those experiences right. they wouldn't otherwise have. Right. So they get that one-time experience mm -hmm. and they go back to the real world and never get to do it again because they're sort of trapped in that environment because they may not have the transportation. They may not have access. I got on the property, but they can't get on the property. Mm -hmm. There's a fee to get on the property and they can't afford the fee on the property. Right. Whatever it is, there's a lot of barriers that I don't think we think through all the way. Uh, as, a, as people who are interested in trying to broaden that participation, I don't think we think through those barriers all the way. Right. Um, and those are real. Mm-hmm. Um, so where do you see, and we're going to have you back on the show because this is not so distinct from things we, issues and challenges and exciting things we encounter with adult education sure. in a non-formal setting, but where do you see environmental education changing for the future generation? Not, you know, we've touched on a few things already, but even in how we can capitalize on their little iPads they all have. Right, right, yeah. So <laughs> different citizen science programs exactly. that could be so cool. Right, so I think that's what we're going to have to do. I think in, I think at the same time we're going to have to get really techno, and then we're also going to have to go really basic. Yeah, <laughs> this weird, weird, this weird mix divergence. Of like right, because uh, historically people did have that rural background. So they already knew, you know, the joke is what a tree is. I mean, so that's a little too mm -hmm. simplistic. But they people knew that stuff because they had already encountered you know some general principles that they that um, just from living in that environment so they already knew that and now people don't have that connection so you're gonna have to back up 
like mm-hmm. we were talking before, back up and take them back to the basics. So conservation ed is going to have to start there. But at the same time, we're doing, we're taking them to the basics and showing them you don't have to be afraid. And you know, this is a bird, and this is really the size of a fox. It's not the size of you know Bigfoot. Oh, it's this little tiny animal. Uh, so we're going to have to take them to those. I think we also are going to have to to then use the um, tools that the young people in particular are already comfortable using. And uh, so getting creative with cameras and phones and, you know, podcasts Mm -hmm. and and, um, videos uh, will be the way that we're going to have to try to capture people's attention. And that works. I mean, you look at the whole, (laughs) you know, Discovery Channel type uh, environment and there clearly is a market for Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. I mean, Shark Week is like this huge thing Mm -hmm. because people are interested naturally. Um, E.O. Wilson called that biophilia. We have this apparent affiliation that um, that we want to go outside. We want to put a plant in our yard. We want to have a screensaver that has fish in it. Mm -hmm. We want to watch Discovery Channel. We have to, so we want to keep feeding that. We want to make sure it's real science-based content. And that's the challenge because there is a lot of information out there. We're, we're saturated with information. Mm-hmm. So what is our reliable sources of information? That's one of the things Extension tries to do is be a reliable source of information to, to our clients. So we're going to have to be that source of reliability, I think, um, whether it's Extension or any kind of conservation organization. But then we're going to have to try to link up those those electronic experiences with real-world experiences. So it's not just interest and even knowledge, but it becomes something that they care about. It's going to be hard to care if you don't actually experience it in some fashion. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Um, We're going to continue this conversation on the next episode when we get into uh, extension and adult education and citizen engagement related to conservation issues. So if you're listening and you want to tune back in for more of this, um, catch us on the next episode. And as always, if you want more information uh, about any of the topics you talked about, we talked about today, or if you want to contact us, um, MSU Cares is the Mississippi State Extension website. Otherwise, you can find all of these podcasts at www.reach.msstate.edu. Thank you for tuning in, and thanks for coming, Leslie. No problem. We'll see you in the next episode. All right. As always, you can find more information on our website or in the show notes after the show. And we always want to acknowledge and thank our primary sponsor, the Mississippi Natural Resources Conservation Service, for their support of this podcast. Thanks for joining us for Coffee and Conservation. To find out more about the topics discussed, visit the REACH website at reach.msstate.edu or the Mississippi State University Extension Service website at extension.msstate.edu.